Luke 22, 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Uh, Father, I just ask that you would use your word now, that uh, you would strengthen our faith with it, that we would see the glory of Christ in it, that you would humble us under your holy and perfect word. Father, that we would lean into this word as though it's nourishment for our soul, which it is. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We all value remembering. We go on dates or vacations when anniversaries come around. We uh, throw banquets for, uh, to remember certain milestones in uh, our lives. I remember the centennial in uh, Watertown uh, as a child. We celebrate birthdays. We take pictures. Why does my phone have 14,000 pictures in it? Part of the answer to that question is we value remembering events, time shared with other people. My wife keeps uh, a sort of scrapbook of every year so that we can remember all that that year brought. When I go hunting, I take my video camera and I like remembering hunts. Uh, when it's not the hunting season, sometimes I'll pull up videos from 15 years ago with some of my friends and think how young we looked and how little we knew back then when we thought we knew so much. We value remembering so much that we keep old clothes that we should throw away. They have no use other than they carry memories. We keep ugly and useless souvenirs that we don't even put out in our house a lot of times, but we can't throw them away because they hold memories to uh, special times. We tell and retell the same stories over and over again. Uh, just a week ago, celebrating Christmas at my mom's house, 
My brother was impersonating my grandpa's laugh. Uh, when my grandfather would laugh, he would turn beet red and he would bounce up and down and he would squeal. And my brother can uh, impersonate that so well. And while he did it, we all laughed and we all felt a sense of joy uh, remembering our grandfather and the sense of humor uh, that he had. And so I'm sure year after year, my brother will continue to impersonate him because it's good to remember. We inherently know this. We know the value of memories. After a loved one is passed on, it's not the inheritance if there is one that has the most value, if you ask the loved ones, but it's the memories. It's the memories of the time spent together. As a child, my family took vacations. My parents didn't have the nicest car or the nicest house, and, but my father would spend money on vacations. And as I think back to my childhood, most of my memories come from those abnormal events that we did, the vacations we took, the things that happened on those vacations. We love remembering the good times, but we also know there's much value to gain in remembering the hard times and painful times. Character is often forged in the trial. Lessons are learned in the pain. The thorns of this earth speak true things to us about reality and our need for a Savior and the need for this world to be redeemed by Christ. So we inherently value remembering. And it's no surprise that God also valued this. If you look at Luke chapter 22, uh, several weeks ago we went through verses 1 through 6. And if you look at verse 1 of Luke 22... It says, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the Passover. Uh, but if you're not, turn to Exodus chapter 12. And let's uh, uh, begin in verse 1. Because year after year, Israel, the Israelites would celebrate the Passover. God wanted them to remember who He is and what He has done on their behalf. It's important that we dive into this because in our text, beginning in verse 7, it says, Then the day of unleavened bread, or came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So let's get our hands around what this Passover celebration was. In Exodus 12, after 
the Lord has already unleashed uh, plagues upon Pharaoh. The final plague that God unleashes is the judgment on the firstborn. And here's where we see this. In verse 1 it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to each that can eat, you shall take and make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So this was a practice that was kept, that as we'll see, God instituted this as a feast that should be kept, that on the 10th day, the family would select the lamb. For four days, you would have a pet in your home. A perfect, unblemished lamb would be in your home for four days. In the first month of Nisan, the 10th day, you would select it. And on the 14th day, you would slaughter the lamb at twilight. And then here's what they were told, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lentil of the houses which, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning shall you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all, and on all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. What a plague. What a plague. If I was an Egyptian, not in a house with blood, being the firstborn, I would die that night. Many men in this room would be dead in light of this plague. And then he says, for all, or in verse uh, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
If there was an Egyptian inside a house that had the blood over the house, the Egyptian would be saved. But any male, Israelite or Egyptian, not in a home covered by the blood, any firstborn male would die. And then we read in verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold, or on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done in all those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may, you, may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day, very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. It's called a memorial. If you look up memorial in the dictionary, it's an event of remembrance, to remember something. Often to honor the one that's being remembered or the event that took place. It's to bring glory to someone. And this is to bring glory to God. And if we were to uh, skip ahead to Exodus 12.24, He says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt and struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And so it's come to the time of the Passover. Several thousand years later, Christ is going to fulfill all righteousness and he's going to keep the Passover with his disciples. But the amazing thing about this is what all needs to happen in a short amount of time and how Christ makes sure it all happens. So when we read in verse 1 of Luke 22, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So the Passover was the day it was slaughtered, and then the feast followed it. And so it drew near in verse 1. This is probably Wednesday of the final week of Christ's life. And then remember what happened on that day. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, 
for they feared the people. Christ has taken over the temple. He's cleansed them out. He's been teaching in the temple. The system of the Sadducees and the high priest, which is an economic system of, of greed. They ran the temple as a business. As the Passover is coming, their time to make bank has come. Christ is taking over the temple, and they got to figure out how to kill him. And we read in verse 2, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to death. And they were glad. They had to have been shocked. The best case scenario. How do we kill Christ privately? We have no idea where he is. Every night, he goes off to the woods, up to the Mount of Olives. People didn't know where he went once it got dark. And you have all the crowds in the cities, and he would disappear. How could we kill him at a time when people wouldn't notice? They were afraid of the people. They didn't want to kill him publicly. So they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. They give Judas money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the presence of the crowd. So there's the plan, or to betray him in the absence of the crowd. So that's the plan. Okay, Judas, now here's your job. You figure out when they're all alone and the crowds aren't around, so we can come in and we can just do away with them. And then there hopefully won't be a riot. He has all this popularity and we will be done with our enemy. So when we read in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread, which would be Thursday. Remember, the Passover lamb was killed on both Thursday and Friday. The Galilean Jews... Uh, counted their days from the morning rather than the evening. So they would sacrifice on Thursday, which was a good thing because so many lambs were being sacrificed in Jerusalem that it kind of split it up. So on Thursday, lambs were being sacrificed. And on Friday, lambs are being sacrificed. And now it's Thursday and Jesus has so much to do because he's going to be dead in a day and a half. And he has to fulfill all that is written of him. So then the day of unleavened bread came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, two of the disciples, saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Perfect. In the eyes of Judas, right? This would be perfect. They're going to be alone. Everyone else will be celebrating the Passover. We could wax him right there. We could take him out. But what does Jesus do? Jesus, who's in control, in control of all things, sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? 
I can imagine that if Judas was there, he's leaning in. He wants to know the location. Where's it going to be? Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Doesn't say the man's name. He doesn't tell them he lives on this street at this place. But you'll see a man carrying a a jar of water, which would be a very odd thing because the women carried the jars of water in that culture. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover, which would take all day to prepare. It's like one of these spy movies where they say the person with the blue notebook Follow him and, and you say, why is he being cryptic? Why is he sending them in and saying, look for a guy with a jar of water? Now, we don't know if this is miraculous or if Jesus has prepared this. It doesn't matter. The point is, is Jesus knows that Judas has betrayed him. Jesus knows what he is going to do on this night. He knows that he's going to be arrested and beaten and flogged and mock trials are going to take part in the morning. And he knows that on Friday, right at the exact time, three o'clock, when they start slaughtering the Passover lambs, that he himself is going to be slaughtered. Time is short. And Christ is in perfect control of all things and his disciples don't have a clue what's going on he's been preparing them he's been telling them and yet chaos what appears to be chaos in their minds is about to erupt in front of them so what can we learn from this text Three things. The charge of this message is this. Find all your hope in Christ. Find all your hope in Christ. The way Peter says it in 1 Peter is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the day of Christ Jesus. If you have 1% of your hope set in circumstances going your way, you can't have peace. If one small molecule in this universe is a rogue molecule, as R.C. Sproul says, no promises are sure. The charge of the message is this. Set your hope on Christ alone. Set all of your hope. Don't leave 1% of your hope in your wisdom and your plans and the circumstances that are going to fall the way you hope. Set it 
in Christ since Christ is in absolute control of everything. Everything Christ is in control of. He has a lot to get done, which he will get done in this day and a half. And he is in control Monday through Wednesday. He's been hiding out in the woods because he got, has to get to this night and he has to get to this meal with his apostles. What he does here, our minds can't even imagine. Bringing to end the old covenant, instituting the new covenant in his blood, changing the Passover feast to the Lord's Supper with all that entails, giving instructions to his disciples. If you were to just look at the headings in your Bible, which you don't need to, I'll just read them off to you. At what happens in this day and a half, the disciples are going to argue who's the greatest. Jesus is going to foretell Peter's denial. Jesus is going to teach that all Scripture must be fulfilled in himself. Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is going to say, one of you will betray me. Jesus is going to tell them a new commandment. He's going to teach them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. He's going to tell them the promises of the Holy Spirit. John 13 to John 17, the high priestly prayer, all this takes place on this night. All this Jesus is going to do. This is going to be the meal of all meals. It's where he teaches them that I am the true vine, that the world is going to hate you. He's going to teach them how the Holy Spirit is going to bring everything that he said to their remembrance. He's going to tell them that their sorrow will turn to joy. He's going to tell them that there will be trouble in this world, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. And in all that that he will do, he is showing them that I am in control. The disciples are about to feel like everything is out of control. It's going to feel chaotic. They're going to be filled with fear. They're going to be filled with guilt. Imagine Peter. They're going to be filled with grief that will threaten to undo them. But Christ reveals during this process, this, his whole life, and especially this last week, and especially this last day and a half, that nothing is out of control. In fact, in John 16, 31, he says this, Jesus said to them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed is come, when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and you will leave me alone. That's the chaos time. Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. He says this at this Passover meal to them. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You've maybe come here today with tribulation in your life. Jesus said it would be so. 
It's not proof that Jesus isn't good if your life experiences tribulation. If the ground produces thorns and thistles in your garden, it's not proof that God is not good. In fact, Christ promised that in this world, there's going to be tribulation, but that he has overcome the world is the peace. And in John 10, 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Listen to the control here. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must, uh, I must bring them also and they'll listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then he says this in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So every one of those shows on the History Channel, every one of those shows on TV that tries to explain how Jesus' ministry went amok, and he got a little too zealous, and he ended up getting himself killed, is all garbage. Because Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. Someone might say, well, the Romans took his life. They crucified him. The Jews took his life. They, they turned him over to the Romans. Well, that's all true to, in one sense, but ultimately, they could do none of that if Jesus didn't decide to lay down his own life. That's why he told Judas, go do what you came to do. Do it. Do it now. The last time they would ever want to sacrifice Jesus Christ is when they're sacrificing the lambs. And guess when he was sac sacrificed? Christ is in control of everything. And he wasn't just in control then, he's in control now. The scripture tells us that every day of your life is written in a book. Every day of your life is written in a book. The Bible tells us that there was a book written before the foundation of the earth that was called the book of the Lamb who was slain. You can trust, you can have peace, you can rest in this crazy, crazy world with sin, remaining sin, even in your own heart, which we hate, and sin in the people's lives around us. We can rest because Christ is just as much in control today as he was in control then. He predicted his death three times just explicitly in the gospel of Luke. Luke 9, 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell uh, this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Not very cryptic, was it? 
That was basically the way you would summarize the death of Christ. And then in Luke 9.43, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Part of it is the grace of God, I think, that they didn't totally understand it yet. You want to know how amazing Christ was as a human being? Imagine if you knew every detail of your torturous death before it came. And then you had to live a life that wasn't just totally paralyzed saying, what's the purpose of this world? Every conscious moment of Christ's life, he knew what his life was about. He knew what was coming. And yet he sat there and he loved people and he taught people. And I think, man, if I knew every detail of a torturous death, talk about a way to ruin the rest of my life. And yet Christ knew his. The love he had to even... You think he would start thinking about himself and feeling sorry for himself. And this is the night he puts on the towel and washes their feet and serves them. Is he not God? Luke 18.31, he said it as clear as you can say it. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Can you trust the Word of God? Can you trust the Old Testament? Can you trust every aspect of it? Jesus says everything written about me is going to happen. It must be fulfilled. It must be accomplished. And then he says, For he, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, be shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Someone might know that it's about to go bad. Jesus knew the order in which his torture was coming. He knew exactly how these mock trials were going to go. While the Jews were afraid that if this went public, there would be a riot, what they never could have guessed is when you offer up a murderer in Barabbas and you offer up Christ, that the crowds would actually choose Barabbas. Could have never known that. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that was going to happen. And so we see Christ in control. And if Christ is in perfect control then, and he's in perfect control now, put your hope fully in Christ. Put your hope fully in Christ. You have a faith battle. Every one of you, every day, with whatever it is, you're tempted to sinfully worry about. You can either believe that You are partially in Jesus' hand, but about falling out, and your life is about to go out of control, or you can believe 
that you are in Christ's hands and Christ is in the, the Father's hand and that your life is secure and that on the worst day of your life, that even that, though it may seem like chaos, it is Christ loving you. He promised tribulation in this world. But he said, take heart. That's not the end of the story. I've overcome this world. The second thing we can learn is Christ is God's chosen lamb to die in the place of sinners. It's most likely that Palm Sunday actually happened on Monday. When you look at the order of things. It is hard to put the last week totally in order. Many scholars believe it actually happened on Monday. Well, that was the day when people would select their lambs. And that was the day when God publicly, through the mouth of babes, revealed, that's the one I choose. That is my chosen lamb. And think of the irony. They wanted him to be a king. They would defeat their enemies. They didn't want him to be a lamb because they didn't know what their greatest need was. They didn't know that they needed to be saved from God because of their sins. The Israelites in the Passover were saved from God. That was God's angel of death. And the Israelites were just as sinful as the Egyptians. And if blood wasn't covering them, they would be killed. They were saved from God. And God says, I got a plan and I got a lamb and that is him. We're going to see more of that next week as Christ is sacrificed at the same time. Did you know that the gospel teaches that he who knew no sin became sin for, so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ? The gospel is this. The point of the Passover is this. Salvation comes through death. Salvation comes through the shedding of blood. And the incredible news that the shedding of blood can come from a substitute. That's what the Passover reveals. To which we all ought to say, praise God and never stop worshiping. <laughs> Salvation comes through death and the death can be the death of a substitute. And Christ is God's chosen substitute to take the place of sinners. The gospel is this. Jesus was treated as though he lived your life. So that you can be treated as though you lived his. He takes your sin you get his righteousness. No wonder when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father 
and Christ Jesus our Lord. What's grace? Grace is getting what you do not deserve. What's mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. And if that's true for you, you want to know what you get? Peace. Grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. Can you get any better news? Christ is God's chosen lamb to die in the place of sinners. So set your hope, all your hope in Christ. Thirdly, Christ loves his sheep. Put all your hope in Christ because he loves his sheep. If you were just to skip ahead into next week's text, look at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Sometimes we talk about emotions as though they're always bad. He had strong emotions. In the Greek, I have desire upon desire to eat this meal with you. This is an emotional meal. These are his friends. He's a real human being. He's really going to die. Peter's really going to deny him. Peter's really going to think he's not going to deny him. But Christ loved his sheep. He isn't just saying, let's get to the cross. Let's just get to the cross quick, quick. No, he earnestly desires to comfort them, to tell them that he's going to prepare a place for them. He loves them. And if he loves them, why wouldn't you put your hope in him? Why wouldn't you set all your hope in the one who's in control of all things, who has stepped into your stead place to die under the wrath of God and who loves you? In fact, in John 13, here's how John records the start of this supper. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He never got selfish. He never got selfish on that cross. He died for you and he died for me. And he's worthy of your faith and your trust in him. Do you know Christ? Do you know that he's God? David knew God. And so David could say things like Psalm 3. When his own son's trying to kill him, he could say, I lay my head down and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I'll not be afraid of many of thousands of people that have set themselves all around against me all around. He knew God. That's how he could say that. Psalm 4.8, In peace I both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You won't lay down and sleep in peace if 1% of your hope is set outside of God. It's just true. Because that 1% is untrustworthy. If 1% is outside of Christ's control, you're in trouble. 
But David knew, I'm going to sleep in peace even though Absalom's trying to kill me because God alone makes me dwell in safety. And that's why he says in Psalm 16, 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. He says, though my body die, you won't abandon me to Sheol. And if you're with me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, well then, I'll fear no evil. Because David knew that the presence of God meant fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He was forsaken of the Father in that moment as our sin was on him and God's pouring out his wrath on him for our sins so that he could tell his disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. On the worst day of your life, you're not alone and I'm still in control and I've overcome this world and these thorns and sickness and everything else. We'll be saved to sin no more. One day we won't sin. Won't that be a great day? What will worship be like then? Fear not, little flock, for it's your good fo- For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christ loves his sheep. The last verse I want to give you is from Psalm 910. It says, And those who know your name put put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. You will only trust Christ as much as you know of him. This is why studying the attributes of God is so important. If you don't know God, you won't put your trust in Him. Who do you trust? It's the people you know best, right? When we read a passage like this, and any passage in the Bible, the main question we should be asking is, what do I learn about God? This scripture reveals God to us. And if I know God, then my trust will grab onto him and I won't shove him aside and choose the internet, try to figure out everything on my own. This is the importance of knowing that Christ is in control. It's the importance of knowing that Christ is God's chosen lamb to die in the place of sinners, which you and I are. And it's important to know that Christ loved his sheep all the way to the end. So that if you're a Christian, Christ is mediating for you constantly at the right hand of God. Interceding, praying on your behalf. Peter, Satan came, he wants to sift you like wheat. But take heart for I've prayed that your faith would remain. If Christ is praying for me and he's interceding for me, then I'm okay. Through the toughest trials. Do you know him? Have you put your faith in him? If you'll put your faith in Christ and admit, I'm a sinner, I have no hope. I need the blood of Christ covering the doorpost of my life. If you know you need that, you know that on judgment day, when judgment falls, you need blood covering you. 
If you cling to Christ by faith, you will be saved. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that is bound up in it. Lord, I pray that you would just enlarge in our hearts in our faith in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.